This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. On today's show, we'll explore some of the issues facing small business owners on the Central Coast. Our goal right now is to drive demand for our unique style of coaching so that we can raise our rates so we can pay more head of household jobs. Also, you'll hear from the author of Outside Voices, a memoir of the Berkeley Revolution. A lot of these women were both feminists and hippies. You know, it just was, for me, the perfect marriage of interests and motivation. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, February 12, 2024. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with Working Lunch. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim D'Antona, CEO for the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce, and your host today, and this is The Working Lunch. The Slow Chamber has formed a direct partnership with KCBX to bring you these Working Lunch discussions. Each month, we will sit down and meet with a member of our community to talk about doing business on the Central Coast. We hope you will join us for these conversations every month on KCBX Issues and Ideas. Today, I'm so pleased to be sitting down with Michael and Peyton Hughes. Michael and Peyton are the husband and wife co-owners of Gymnazo, a fitness center located in San Luis Obispo. Hello, Michael and Peyton. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Thanks for having Jim. us. Appreciate it, yeah. So Gymnazo describes itself as a fitness center dedicated to stronger sports performance, functional fitness for everyday life, pain relief and mobility, and female pelvic core therapy. Additionally, Gymnazo highlights helping people over 50 live their best life. So Michael and Peyton sounds very different from what most of us probably think when we hear about a quote-unquote gym. Uh, is that what you're going for? That's exactly what we're, we're going for. When you walk into our spot, there's not treadmill alley, elliptical row, dumbbells against the mirrors. It's open space. In fact, we don't even have a single mirror besides the bathrooms. The point is open space movement. The way we move in a sports field, the way we move in our garden, the way we move in our house is the exact way we want to have you move in this gym. Let's just jump back real quick. You know, this is your fitness center, the American dream of owning your own business. But you and those of us who work with business owners know it's no small undertaking to try and do this. Thinking back, uh, what led you to the decisions to own your own business and specifically in the fitness sector? I mean, that's a hard place to make a business work. So I would like to start with this because my wonderful wife next to me said, why did you choose fitness? What a miserable place to make money. <laughs> and, I was, and I said, I didn't choose this. It chose me. And it was not the decision to be an entrepreneur. I felt bred to do it. There's every single person in my family, at least from the male side, owns their own business, from grandfathers to, to aunts to uncles. I just felt that that's what you do. You just do these things. Um, it's not as easy as it cracks up to be. Mm-mm. The one thing that I do have is just grit. I'll just keep going. So that's essentially how I picked fitness is it helped me so much as a eighth grader, actually, and as a high schooler, build so much confidence in yourself. And I was that person who grew up with a really big stutter. And really was very much like just downplayed who I was. So if I could change who I was by how I trained myself, then I started doing it with friends in high school. And just that sense of like, wow, thanks, Michael. Thanks for helping me. And that gave me such a a passion to be like, what is the highest level of this in this industry? 
and physical therapy was what I thought at the time. So I started to blend those practices together. And long story short, very long story short, here is now Gymnazo. Peyton, I know from your past, you're someone that helps businesses figure out how to expand, grow. You're consulting with businesses to do that. Did you look at, you know, Michael trying to do this and go, what? You know, how are we going to do this? Yeah. So at the time... I was working with Collaboration Business Consulting in town and was getting a chance to watch strategies be implemented across different industries and with different leadership and see things that are working overall. So I was very opinionated about how to grow a business. And I would joke, Michael, like, gosh, fitness and restaurants, man, like that's just like those are some industries that you're going to be lucky to squeeze 10 percent profit out of that experience. And they're they have tons of turnover. Like there's so many problems. They're highly undervalued in the marketplace. It's very confusing as a consumer to know what's better when everyone's claiming the same jargon. So how do you stand out? But I would just talk to Michael, and he was like, you know what? People are in more and more chronic pain. The more sedentary we are and the more we're aging as a population, your physical body's maybe not at the peak it should be for your age. And so you can see that wave's coming, right? So that's an indication that something's happening. And you also look at most trainers only need liability insurance to train in the state of California, which is really sad as a standard. And it's a fair, it's the wild west out here in terms of how do you prove that you're actually good at your job in fitness. And so you see like there's this gap between knowledge and then people who are walking into gyms thinking, I'm going to get a really great workout, but their backs hurt, their shoulders tweaked. They just rolled their ankle yesterday and they think they're going to pick up this, you know, 50 pound weight and they're going to throw it around and feel like they're an all-star athlete from high school. And that's just not what happens. And so people don't want to feel benched in their workouts. And what I watched Michael do is he had this way of going, I'm going to basically con people into doing rehabilitation exercises and make it feel sexy and fun because it's fitness. And that's what fitness is supposed to be fun and make you feel vibrant and good about yourself. And so I watched he had a very innovative approach. And so I like a challenge. And it was. It's a challenge. Can you get an aging demographic to care? And can you get them to not realize they're doing rehabilitation exercises? And they don't care because all they know is that I just come out of that place smiling and there's something special about that spot. So he had all those elements. That's true, right? As I've hit 50 um, and, uh, you know, uh, being a former athlete, you realize the body's not doing more. But you're always taught, right, throw the weights around, get on a treadmill. And watching your work, I can imagine how people really do. You get them in there, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, this is fun, and I feel better. So that's pretty amazing. But that still leaves the bigger problem, as you talked about, right? Yeah. You have employees. You have staff. How do you make this a living wage, head of household job? And you've clearly set out some plans. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Let me start, and then you you finish it up. Because the state of the industry for fitness is essentially you have – kinesiologists coming out of Cal Poly. There is no job that is set for a kinesiology degree that you need that education for. So we have literally 28,000 graduates from kinesiology departments across the country that have no need for that education and no job to pay them for it. What a statistic. So how do we create that? Well, in the traditional industry, it's only the owners or the franchise 
owners in a sense, in the, in the, in the greater sense, that make money in this field. So how do we transition it to being a movement engineer? I know a lot of engineering firms, owners make a lot of money, as they should, running a good business. But so do the engineers. So do the lawyers in the firm. We're just a service-based industry. We kind of have a blue-collar mentality, but we kind of look, look at a little bit that white-collar up approach as well. So that's the state of the industry. And then how Payton looked at, uh, at it, I'll have you kind of step in, into that. So something that is important for us was, you know, when you look at fitness industries, you can probably guess if you get 12 people in a room paying $15 an hour, you're getting, you know, on average two to two high 200s, low 300s in terms of per hour. And that coach is making 20 bucks. Like, that's what it is. And so we figured out pretty easy. Like, group fitness was, Michael was ahead of the group fitness phase. He started in the early 2000s before group fitness was a big thing. And that was just simply a way to leverage his time. So he was already thinking like that. But we were tra- so often just going to Cal Poly getting interns. And then we'd go to kinesiology department going, can we get this them internship credit to work with us? And then can we hire them as part-time coaches? A part-time coach who's a college student is fine with 20 bucks to like feel good, look good, and be social for an hour. That's a good job in college. Like, what are your other options? But we started to realize, gosh, you know, we're constantly fluctuating the schedule. There's all these problems and they're turning over. And just as soon as we fall in love with a coach, he's out or she's out for, you know, another few years. And then we're constantly spinning our wheels. So for so long, it was, can we get someone to work for us? full time. That was like the dream for us for a while. And we ended up having to look at that and and we found amazing humans that have worked with us. And what I think we're the proudest of right now is most of our employees have been with us six years, which is huge in an industry where every six months you're losing a coach and retraining them. Well, how are you going to get a really good coach? in six months. So Michael built an internship program that was devoted to blending this hybrid of physical therapy because he studied under these renowned physical therapists that are black sheeps of their industry, but they're very, very revolutionary in the way that they think about movement pain. And everybody was excited. And what I love about the younger generations that we predominantly employ is they are loyal to their learning curve. And that's really powerful for us. So we started to realize, gosh, if we invest in them, they see it as an investment. And if we keep the atmosphere fun, we keep it light, as long as their needs are cared for, then it's sort of like Daniel Pink's book, Drive, where he talks about how, and they did a ton of studies on this, if you take care of people's basic needs, then they're way more interested in contribution. They're way more motivated by internal factors than external factors. If you're just joining us, I'm Jim D'Antona from the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce, and this is Working Lunch on KCBX. And we are here with Michael and Peyton Hughes of Gymnazo talking about the issues impacting our county. But we still had a problem, which can we solve for the external factors? And so we started to realize we have to do two things. We have to train enough smart coaches to work underneath us to handle movement pain for the predominant business community, I would say, is who uses our services. And they have high expectations. They expect you to not only be a great person, but they expect you to know things and to solve their problems in the way that they want to be communicated with. So there is soft skills being layered in there on how to talk to people with different personality styles than you. There's intelligence in terms of how do you describe this in a way that feels accessible so people feel empowered with their body. And then we have to drive the price up. So what can the market bear? And 
I would say both of us have people pleasing tendencies. And so like, I think we've done a lot of internal work around standing in our value and believing that we're really good at what we do. And so we continue to just march that price up. And I remember Michael Gunther, who's um, one of my mentors in life, he would always say, like, if you raise prices and you don't see an attrition of 20 percent, you haven't raised it high enough. We've never hit that. So like to this point, like we still have work to do. But our goal right now is to drive demand for our unique style of coaching so that we can raise our rates and so we can pay more head of household jobs. So we're doing a lot better at it, I would say. And I think the point that I want to drive home is fitness for the general standpoint of looking good and burning calories isn't a big enough problem that is being solved to pay that amount. So you have to solve a bigger problem. And there's no bigger problem that someone has is when their lower back hurts or they can't actually throw a baseball to their son or can't go on a hike with their friends because of that knee. Those are big problems once they come up. And if we can solve those quickly, efficiently, and provide a path forward for the rest of their sustainable life, that's worth it. You know, you don't appreciate it till it starts happening to you. 100%. Uh, someone who can help you do that and will get you in a good and fun place to do that, definitely. And it's one of the issues, Peyton, you brought up the issue of paying a value for it. And it's something we have to do all over our county, right? We're a small county and we've for a long time undervalued everything we deliver. Mm -hmm. And if we want people to stay here and we want people to live here, we have to do all those things. So as you're working your way up, one of the things you've done in your business, I've seen, we, you know, we partner with First Five and uh, the County of Slow to do these family-friendly workplace program to look at businesses who are doing interesting things to keep their people here work with their employees. You are one of our higher level workplaces with diamond level for what you did. How did that come to be and how do you, how are you making that work? I think it's really fun and I, I want you to speak speak to it, Peyton, is you know, we all grew up essentially together. You know, I started gymnasio in my early twenties, uh, mid twenties in a sense. And then Peyton and I met in our late twenties. We were the first to get married of our team first to have kids in our team, but our team was only two to three years behind us. So it started as, again, we have employees been with us for almost a decade now, and they went to our wedding, we've gone to their weddings, and to see us all grow up together was an amazing and very worthwhile process to now solve what we feel is the biggest problem with a small business, is how to make the family be part of the solution. So Payne did a great job of feeling that personally mm -hmm. and designing it. I think I'm very opinionated that the more women we have in leadership roles, the more the family gets taken care of. And I just think that's very true. And it's not to say there aren't benevolent men out there that truly get the value, but I just know what it feels like to have a screaming infant child in my arms at four o'clock and to know that hey, my yeah. depleted, yeah, but to know that my depleted brain isn't good enough in that moment and I desperately need my partner there. And the resentment that I would instantly feel building inside of me if that person was under so much pressure from their job, they weren't coming home to seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night. Like that just would be a real deal breaker. And so I think there is something important about feeling that and knowing that. And then also being in partnership to your team to go when it's your turn. And we were having our employees tell us they were pregnant before they told their family. 
I mean, that's how close. I mean, I took that as like one of the biggest signs of trust ever. Because you hear all the time, don't tell your employers until you're four months pregnant because, oh my gosh, they'll try to push you out before. And like, we didn't have that experience at all. It was very much like, okay, great. And you know, no pressure to return to work. What do you want? How long do you want your leave to be? When can you come back? And I get that that might sound wild. Like, we're just very loyal to our people. And I think that there's been a lot of reciprocity around that that's been a benefit to us. We also feel like part of it is work-life balance is something that I know. I'm a millennial, and we have been made fun of by previous generations so often for being entitled to believing that work is optional after hours, to turning our phone off. But that is because, and I don't know whether this is true, but it is true for me. I have watched the corporate America system fail previous generations. And the loyalty that was previously observed to employees is not there the way it used to be. And so that changes the loyalty that we feel to businesses. And I remember being an employee. Michael's always been an entrepreneur, but I remember being an employee being like, you know, I do need to be loyal to my learning curve. I do need to be loyal to me first because there aren't all these safety nets out there that there used to be. And so... I think it's been really important for us to honor that and go one of our strengths as business owners is being millennial. And it is understanding that millennials, Gen Zs, and future generations care a lot more about work-life balance and lifestyle than they ever have before. And so instead of fighting that and pretending it's not a thing, go hard on that because that's our advantage. We can't throw down the same salary an engineering company can. We can't throw down the same benefits and the 401k packages and the healthcare benefits that everyone else can. But you know what we can do? We can promise you a really fun job surrounded by some of the biggest thought leaders in this town who will become your basic life coaches as you are training them and they're just duking out life advice to you and you feel so supported by this community and you're being pushed and you're learning and you're pioneering something new and you're part of an innovative company and your whole family gets free workouts at Gymnazo because we know that when we get it wrong as owners, you will vent to your significant other. And if they don't love what we're doing, this is a problem. So we invite the whole family to be part of what we're doing. We know we won't get it perfect because nobody does and we're going to make mistakes. Um, but we've created a sense of, you know, we can give you what other companies struggle to give, which is a really fun culture and work environment and a lot of flexibility and freedom. So if they say I'd rather work four days, 10 hours, fine. Take a day off. To have your three-day weekends. Like we can be so much more flexible in an industry that's notorious for 12-hour workdays and abusing employees in a significant way, in my opinion. So that was a big one. The other thing that's nuanced is who do they serve? Our coaches are on the front line serving people who are desk jockeys, who work and are sedentary for the most part, and they roll in and they're upset because they're wearing the signs of stress, the inflammation in their body, the pain that they're rolling in every single day because of the high stress work environments that they're put under. So it's ingraining into our team, I don't want that for me. This is a pretty good job. And that was the biggest thing through the pandemic, we realized that our our customers, paid in my customers, were our coaches, not our customers. And we believed that, but we started to live it. And that was one of the hardest things, but one of the best things that we've ever done, is realizing that our coaches are more important than our customers. And when we took Saturdays off the schedule, when we 
removed Friday nights because we had a, a lower staff count. We did not make our customers happy, but we kept our coaches that are going to propel us to the, to the future. And yes, you need both. You obviously need paying customers. But if you can put your staff first, we believe that's the, that's the entrepreneurial journey for growth, at least in this town. When you have so few people to work with, and 280,000 in our entire county, and you need great employees, you figure out quickly that your employees become the great piece to the customer, and that's how you keep those customers. Um, we've had several great interviews with Carrie Morris of uh, Morrison Garitano and uh, Jennifer Idler. And again, as you said, Peyton, as men can appreciate the issue, but as we get great uh, women leaders in here, we're seeing that change because you've lived it, right? You feel it. What did you see putting in the crystal ball the next two to five years? Uh, my crystal ball for two to three years is San Luis Obispo is a is really kind of a gem to be in. It will grow as essentially the, the work from home concept is still available, especially with a lot of tech based jobs. Realize you don't have to live inside of a massive city, but it's also going to be challenging because we are going to have more tech in our lives, more AI in our lives, and robotics in, in, in our lives. In two to three years, maybe not so much, but maybe the beginnings of it, and so therefore we're going to be more sedentary. And our body's going to be punished because of lack of movement. So for the fitness industry, we got a great future ahead of us. <laughs> and do you have a, a Peyton? Yeah, yeah, I I would say to me, there's another a piece too where um, that mental health is an issue that's going to continue to be in the forefront for everybody. And there's enough destigmatization that's gone on to make us feel like you know it's okay to say I'm struggling with anxiety, I'm struggling with depression, and our physical body is an amazing portal to do that, to remove the stress off the body through movement. But I also think that we're going to see a blend in in fitness where it's not just about getting a hard workout in, it's about connecting to a deeper piece of ourselves and not just living in our head in this really dense, chaotic, anxious, producing thought process and actually getting back into our bodies. I like this vessel that, that's housing my soul and being a little more esoteric with it. I think that we're going to see people valuing movement versus looking good for their bikini body. I think we're going to move away from that. And I think it's going to be about, I just want to feel really good. And I like myself when I feel good. And I notice that I'm a nicer person when I'm prioritizing myself. San Luis Obispo does value movement. We do value the outdoors. We do value work-life balance far more than our state. I would say we're a little cool like community that really does understand that. And I think that in the next two to five years, we'll also be seeking for places where we can belong and have a community of like-minded people around us. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation today. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. To you, our listeners, thank you for joining us for this important conversation. On behalf of Michael and Peyton Hughes of Gymnazo, KCBX, I'm Jim D'Antona for the San Luis Obispo Chamber of Commerce. We hope you have an amazing week. Keep making our community a wonderful place to live. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX, public radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, the nonprofit story.
Welcome to the Nonprofit Story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and today I have Mary Qualls. She is with the Monday Club. Mary, welcome to the Nonprofit Story. Thank you. Well, you certainly are the right person to talk to. You've been a past publicity chair, a membership chair, a development chair for our Fine Arts Awards, which we do want to hear more about, as well as the Classical Music Chair. So let's start off talking about the Monday Club. What's your mission? Why are you here? Our mission, and it dates back to 1924, Mm. is to enhance the educational, civic, social, and cultural quality of the San Luis Obispo community. And we were established in November of of 1924 Mm. as a combination of two women's clubs. One was a book club and one was a home culture club, which was, I would imagine, cooking and gardening and, you know, making a beautiful home life. Mm-hmm. But when you set that in what was happening in history at that moment in time, it becomes very consequential in the sense that it was just post World War One. Mm-hmm. The women had just achieved the vote after a very long, very hard fought, mm-hmm. right? And so these women in the early twenties wanted to be more involved in the community, in their community. And San Luis Obispo was a tiny little place mm-hmm. at that point. How bad! <laughs> so they made themselves a mission that really encompassed a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. They wanted to really be a force, and over the years, the Monday Club has truly become a force in the community. And I think a lot of people still are not really sure about that and what it is. That's so true. We recently had a launch. We're having a year-long sort of celebration of our 100th anniversary. Mm. And um, at the launch, people came up to me saying, I've lived here all my life, or I've lived here for 40 years, and I had no idea this clubhouse was here nor did I know anything about the Monday Club. Right. And I think it's famous also because of who helped to design and build it, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Tell us about that. The building actually is just 90 years old. Mm. Um, So the club itself sort of uh, peaked in 1925, or 28 rather, at 350 members. And they had previously been meeting in places like um, the basement of the Carnegie Library, which mm-hmm. is now the History Center. Mm-hmm. And club mythology says they were sitting on orange crates and things like that. <laughs> they outgrew every venue. And so they really needed a clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And they approached Julia Morgan, who was working with Hearst on mm-hmm. what is now known as Hearst Castle. Right to design a clubhouse. She was famous for doing a lot of women's clubs and Mm. also YWCA's. As a working woman, a single woman traveling, she knew that it was difficult for women to find a place to stay or women who were single working a place to live Mm -hmm. even. And uh, so she was very benevolent in that way. So our clubhouse is absolutely gorgeous. Tell us a little bit more then of some of those um, beginning activities that you had Mm -hmm. early Mm -hmm. and some of the activities that you do now with the Monday Club. 
some of the early activities really involved fundraising for things that they wanted to accomplish in the community. I think they, you know, worked on uh, having local dairies pasteurize milk. They raised money to uh, build Mitchell Park. Mm-hmm. They <laughs> did a lot of things during World War II, and we even have like some recognition up in our sunroom at the Monday Club. Mm-hmm. They spotted enemy planes. Wow. They uh, salvaged metals and things like mm-hmm. that, picked tomatoes. Um, because, you know, a lot of the farm workers were gone. They would knit hats and socks for the soldiers. And so they're very, very involved in the war effort at that time. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, we work with a national program to help kids that are at risk with uh, literacy. And that's called Raising a Reader. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our members are very passionate about it. And Uh, Initially, they were involved in classroom work, and then the pandemic sort Mm -hmm. of put a stop to that. And so they started book drives, and they're getting books into the hands of kids. So currently, we're um, raising money to buy uh, mostly Spanish language books uh, currently, and it's it's going really well. So it means that you have a real active membership, right? Amazing. People can join? Yeah. It's a historic women's club. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who lives in the county can uh, apply for membership. Mm-hmm. And if you have the time to devote and can support our mission and goals, then we're interested in having you as a member. And it's it's fun. We also, we work hard, but we play hard too. Mm-hmm. So now it's called the Monday Club. Mm-hmm. So do you just meet on Mondays? Our general meetings are on Monday, mm-hmm. but then we will have some other events that are just for members. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're on Mondays and sometimes they're on other days. One of our members is an artist, Tracy Taylor, and she does an annual Valentine-making workshop for us. Another member, Iva Wilcox, has studied floral design for years, and Mm. she's done floral design workshops and that sort of thing. So we we do fun things, but the general meetings are business meetings, but we also always have a speaker. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's an educational experience for the members, and we're allowed to invite a guest. Mm-hmm. So I want to take a little time here to talk about the Fine Arts Awards that you get, because I know that's a really big thing, and it falls some of the students in the communities. You know, this particular effort that we make dates back to 1961, 1962, Mm -hmm. actually, Mm -hmm. was our first year of giving awards. But one of our members, Alice Nelson, was instrumental in the creation of the Slow Symphony Orchestra very small town back then, you know, still in Mm -hmm. the 60s. Mm -hmm. And um, she recognized there was a need to have a source pool of musicians, classical musicians. And so she and the Monday Club created this competition. Mm -hmm. And so it started off initially as a music competition, and it's morphed over the years. And Mm -hmm. now we have jazz as well as classical 
musicians competing and uh, visual artists. And it's for juniors and seniors in San Luis Obispo County. And then the finalists compete. And this year's competition Mm -hmm. will be uh, March 10th. And it'll be in the afternoon. That's a Sunday afternoon. It's free. It's open to the public. It's terrific entertainment. These kids are amazingly talented and uh, and they love having an audience and they need that audience mm-hmm. so people are welcome to come and so and that's watch great them. so this is going to be sunday march 10th at the club at the monday club at the monday club of okay. course it'll be in the afternoon it'll mm-hmm. start at one o'clock it's first come first serve so you know seating will have about 100 seats available uh just prior to the pandemic in 2020, it was a full house, and uh, Monday Club members gave up their seats mm. to stand and back to oh, give nice. to the audience, mm-hmm. and it was really fun. And to see the visual arts, we mm-hmm. have a little exhibit mm-hmm. um, of all the art from the finalists, and they're incredible. Mm-hmm. The talent is unbelievable. This is the Nonprofit Story. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I am here speaking with Mary Qualls. She is with the Monday Club. This is their 100th year, and she's here to tell us about the club and telling us all of the wonderful things that they're doing in the community. And Mary, you're working with the county schools and course development uh, with filmmaker Robin Smith on the Monday Club and Julia Morgan. What we wanted to do, because so many people are not aware of the club, which is historic, Mm -hmm. and the clubhouse, which requires preservation efforts, we thought that there was a real opportunity to educate kids. And so we approached the schools and then Innovate, which is a nonprofit, which creates courseware for the schools, and they were very excited. But we also polled teachers in various schools because, to a certain degree, they're inundated with materials. So we wanted to see if there really was an interest, and they were very enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. So Mary, tell us more about docent tours and what that means for all of us. Well, our clubhouse, the club is 100 years old. The clubhouse is 90 years old. It was completed in 1934. Mm -hmm. And it was designed by Julia Morgan. And in 2016, we became registered with the National Registry of Historic Places. And so... Congratulations on that, too. Thank (laughs) you. And I have to give a shout out to our treasurer, Jennifer Alderman, who worked long and hard to accomplish that because it's not an easy thing. Mm -hmm. So... um, As a result of that registration with the registry, we are required to educate the public about our building. So we established uh, docent tours back in 2016. Well, more recently, we have two former Hearst Castle docents who are chairing our docents, Mm -hmm. Brooke Meek and Liz Ruderman-Miller. And the docents dress up in 1930s, attire, and they've just brought a whole new energy to the tour. And the kids that are going through the Julia Morgan and Monday Club Clubhouse material 
take these tours too. So, And can the public come in and take them? And uh, so Oh, win. yes. It's usually the second two Mondays of the month. Check our website okay. for the schedule. You don't need to register. You just show up. I know you have another thing, too, that I noticed on your website, which is very interesting. You need to go look at that. The 100 Women Honored. Yes, that is in conjunction with our 100th anniversary. Mm. And you're able to make a donation to honor a woman that somehow influenced you or that you admire. Mm -hmm. And then you'll receive, um, you know, a recognition type of certificate for that donation. And then we're working on some sort of permanent installation that's mobile because we have a historic building, so we can't really modify the building. But we want to display these, you know, 100 women being honored. Mm -hmm. So we're in the process of making some plans around that. Uh, This being your centennial year, Mm -hmm. uh, and you're having centennial events. You want to tell us about some of those? February 14th, it's a Valentine pickup dinner. We started these during the pandemic when Mm. we couldn't rent the building or make money any other way. And it's just become very popular. People look forward to these wonderful dinners. So this Valentine's event is called Everything's Coming Up Roses. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, look up the details on the website. We only do 100 and they sell out. You did Mention something here thing about using the building. Now, can people actually rent the building at yes. times? It's a venue. It's very uh-huh. popular for weddings. And on our website, there's a little venue button, and you can see some of the rates. And it's uh, great for business meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, Slow Opera has used it for you know some of their events. A lot of different organizations have used it. It's one of the ways that we make money to preserve the building. When the club started, we didn't have a building, and now we have a 90-year-old building. Mm-hmm. And for many years, because it was built and designed by Julia Morgan, terrific shape. Well, Mm -hmm. now we have to preserve it. And so that's a huge task for us. And I might mention here that we are all volunteer. We don't have any staff. We don't have any paid staff. And so everything that we accomplish is through volunteers. And I think that's very special. Mm -hmm. So we are tasked with preserving this building. And so Part of what we do is raise funds for that. Mm -hmm. And the other efforts that we're going to make this year will be a big event, probably in the fall, to somewhat coincide with our November 17th anniversary, but we... It's still in the planning stage, Mm -hmm. so I can't give you any specifics, but I would really, it'll be a party. So we need to just stay in touch with you to know it. Definitely. So there's a lot going on in the Monday Club. Give us the address of the Monday Club. Okay, the physical address is 1815 Monterey Street, San Luis Obispo, and it sits back. So that's why a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. see it when they zoom by on their way to the highway. By the way, even if it's not open when you walk from downtown or wherever, 
feel free to walk around the gardens mm. and just take a look because we recently had a grant from the Miosi Trust to redo our landscaping nice. and we're really trying to keep it um, indigenous and easy, you know, drought tolerant, mm-hmm. that type of thing. That's good. And can people still become a member? Absolutely. We welcome members and um, you can apply online mm-hmm. And our membership chair, Julie Martin, will get in touch with you. It involves an online application and then uh, attendance at a meeting, a general meeting, to make sure that this still appeals to you, and an interview with the membership chair. And just one more thing I had noticed that I did want to mention is that it seems that you do some uh, work or support with the Lumina Alliance organization, Absolutely. right? Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. That's so important. We, we think so, too, and it's a historic thing for us. We worked um, for years with the Women's Shelter mm-hmm. and ECHO and, you know, those organizations that have combined into the Lumina Alliance. And what we try to do is give directly to the participants, the clients, if you will. And so we um, work with Lumina to find out what their needs are. And sometimes because they're relocating people to a living situation, they'll need bedding or towels or, you know, children's clothing and and school school supplies is a big thing. Usually in September we'll bring in lots of school supplies. So we try to give directly to the to the clients mm-hmm. in our efforts. And I think you've just helped people understand what the Monday Club is. So Ooh, Mary Qualls you. with us here today, uh, working with the Monday Club in many, many capacities, has now given us some information on this 100-year-old organization here in San Luis Obispo. Mary, thank you for being on The Nonprofit Story. Thank you. You're welcome. This is Dr. Consuelo Mukes. Thank you for joining us on The Nonprofit Story. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast, and this is Issues and Ideas. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, KCBX's Tom Wilmer and Cal Poly journalism student Addie Yule meet with award-winning author and poet Joan Gelfand. I'm correspondent Tom Wilmer. Come along and join me along with Cal Poly journalism student Addie Yule as we meet with award-winning author and poet Joan Gelfand. Gelfan shares fascinating tales chronicled in her book, Outside Voices. When Gelfand moved from New York City in the early 1970s, she landed in the epicenter of Berkeley, California's burgeoning women's movement. And her book, vividly and lyrically, explores her personal journey of awakening during a radical time in a remarkable place. Joan Gelfand, what a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. A poet and an author. Let's go back in time. You were a girl in New York, right? Not upstate New York, but New York, New York. The city, yes. Yeah. So tell us about that. Well, remember, New York in the 70s was kind of a nasty place to be. Think about the punk rock movement and Patti Smith, and it was really gritty. Mm-hmm. And I was a nature girl. I actually had a friend who was going to California, and I said, oh, that sounds like total fun. Okay, I'm going for three months. I came, and then we had one introduction 
to one person. And that person was a musician. And the next thing I knew, I was enveloped in this community of artists and writers, and I was a budding writer, and I was being encouraged. I think Berkeley became my happy place. You know, not only was I able to express my and start to learn to be a real writer, but there was nature. Before you arrived, did you know there was a revolution going on in Berkeley, California? Um, I knew that a lot of the cool kids were there, but I didn't know exactly the depth of what was going on. Why Berkeley? Why at that time in history, especially the women's movement? What happened? What was the stimulus? Well, the second wave feminism definitely had started on the East Coast. Bella Abzug. Right, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem. Betty Friedan had organized the National Organization for Women, and she had initiated this event called the Women's Strike. But then that energy, of course, came to California. And right before I got there, there was a huge women's feminist conference in LA and UCLA. And that started to coalesce women who were activists and political up in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that Berkeley was the epicenter, but it was definitely... Um, things happened in Berkeley because it was a much more free environment. You could live inexpensively. That was a huge impact. And then also, remember, we've had free speech coming out of Berkeley. We've had the summer of love coming out of Berkeley. So a lot of these women were both feminists and hippies. You know, it just was, for me, the perfect marriage of interests and traditions and motivations. Did you seek out intentionally to cohabitate in a women's house? I think at that point, the women started to realize that if we wanted to get certain things done, we had to kind of have some time and space for ourselves mm -hmm. without the male influence. So, for example, I moved in with this women's band, and one of the big issues for them was I'm tired of being the sidekick in a men's in a you know may, all male band. Right, like right. I'm the chick singer or I'm the chick drummer. This was like we want to be the band. We want to be center stage. Mm -hmm. We had kind of a tsunami of individual women musicians that were breaking ground. Joni Mitchell, Carol King, Carly Simon, people like that who were standing up. But now Laura Nero. So now this was women together as a band saying, we don't want to be just one person and we don't want to be the sidekick of the guys. Mm -hmm. We're going to do it together. And you went to that festival with that women's band. That's cool. Tell us about that interlude. Well, that was just heaven. I mean, now people go to Coachella, they go to these Taylor Swift concerts. But as I say in my book, you didn't need a mortgage to go to a music concert at that time. You know, I think it was free. <laughs> and it was up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Who knows who organized it? I still don't know. But it was like, 
there we were. There was a swimming pool. We were camping. There were women's bands. It was just super fun. So the summer of love, the days of that innocence, the dawning of the Aquarian age was over. So it was a rougher, tougher place in the 70s in Berkeley than it was in the 60s. Absolutely. I keep telling people I had grown up and I was a young activist in high school. We were protesting the Vietnam War. So I just tell people we had just been fighting since I was 15 years old. So we just kept fighting. You know, yeah, I was less involved in the summer of love than I was in the anti-war and then this social action with building women's shelters for battered women, fighting for rape victims. And we also, if you look at the website for the Berkeley Revolution, a professor at UC Berkeley was so intrigued with this particular era that he had his students in American history deeply research these the same years that are in my book, mm-hmm. 1972 to 1975. And he was the one who put the moniker the Berkeley Revolution. We were also working closely with the Black Panthers. Yeah. It was, I, I would say, a couple of disenfranchised groups and the disabled, because that's when the Center for Independent Living came up, was developed in Berkeley to give disabled people rights. Yeah, a lot of things were changing fast and furiously in that age. Another part of this era, Tom, was women were being empowered for the first time economically. When I've been speaking to groups, I think they're awestruck when I say, you don't realize, but in the late 60s, women could not get a mortgage, they could not get credit cards, they were not empowered economically. Here we fast forward just five or 10 years, all of a sudden women are economically empowered. So women were starting presses, restaurants, This is when Chez Panisse in Berkeley Mm -hmm. came up. And you started a restaurant. And we started. It was funky. It wasn't Chez Panisse. It was funky, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. And it was in a church? It was in a church. It was in a church. Yeah. You know, it was a time when you didn't need to have a real job. You could Mm -hmm. just survive doing small things. And so people had time to become self-realized, quite honestly, because... It didn't cost so much to live. And a little bit more about why Berkeley? Why then? And what happened? This was a period, even though there was the Vietnam War, and I arrived on the day that Nixon got reelected and everybody hated Nixon. But because we were coming off free speech and the summer of love, doors were very open. And so people were really kind of going with their most heartfelt interests you know you nothing kind of stopped you yeah so really there was an innocence definitely and berkeley in particular i think i mean you know if you look at the whole global travel industry let's say you know certain places become it places like at one time it was istanbul then it was berlin and of course there was paris in the 20s you know berkeley was really the it place in the 70s there was so much energy creative energy and that draws people you know when you have 
bands that are playing and artists performing. It keeps drawing people. And it builds on itself. And it builds on itself. So that was definitely happening. Yeah. So at some point, you left. I did. What moved you away? You know, I didn't actually leave the Bay Area, but I removed myself from the women's community because it got too radical for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, I remember you mentioning where no men were allowed, and that was like a deal breaker. That was a deal breaker because, you know, as you see now in political groups, there can be factions and you have your extremists. Mm -hmm. And so out of the blue comes these extremists that say the only way the feminist movement is going to succeed is if we eradicate men. And I was like, I'm a feminist, but I just don't believe that. Did you ever get a real job? A day day job? Of course, I had to. I mean, that was part of getting to the end of my college. I'm like, Hmm. Now, what does a poet do to pay the rent? And I got into advertising is what I did. That was my foray into the real world. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you balance your two lives when you had a real job? You know, I think because I didn't take a writing job, I was uh, in the media department. I kept all my writing energy for myself. Mm -hmm. And so... I never stopped writing, and that's what kept me going. And you've been publishing the whole time, right? No, no. No? I didn't get serious. Well, I was publishing when I was in Berkeley in the 70s, and that was in the days where someone said, I have a magazine. Can I publish you? (laughs) It was so casual and easy. And then it became hard, and I couldn't kind of manage the structure and the rejection and I got out of the publishing for about 10 or 15 years and then I got very serious I said come on you cannot do what you want to do with your career unless you start to publish and so I got serious about publishing was and it publisher parish it was a little bit of publisher parish yeah. so talk to us about your in-person presentation well right now I'm talking a lot about outside voices. And what's so cool is that it just opens a door for people to remember their own experiences. And so I'm hearing a lot about that. That's really awesome. Mm -hmm. The other fun thing is that I was interviewed on iHeartRadio. And at the end, the producer said to me, you know, you've inspired me to revisit my own social action agenda. And I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, if this book can kind of whip people into being excited about doing what we have to do, of course, as you know, we are now in a moment where we have to really work hard to make sure we preserve our democracy. And uh, for women, the biggest issues, of course, right now are women's rights over their own bodies. If you're just joining us, Tom Wilmer and Cal Poly journalism student Addie Ewell meet with author Joan Gelfand, whose new book is Outside Voices, a memoir of the Berkeley Revolution. A journalism student from Cal Poly State University is with us today. And I thought it'd be cool to have Addie 
jump in. Hi, I'm Addie. I'm a journalism student at Cal Poly, and I just had a few questions for you. So going back to when you said you first arrived in Berkeley and you weren't too confident saying, you know, I am a woman, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, so I'm also a young writer and a woman. So I was just wondering how you kind of got more comfortable with that label and kind of self-identifying is that something you're interested in? That's such a great question. For me, coming from being a young writer with very little confidence, every single thing, every single event that ascertained or affirmed my writing self moved me Mm -hmm. to be more confident. So in other words, having my first reading, having my first publication, and then as you go down the line, having your first book, you know, I spent many years in business, and we always used to say success breeds success. So you just have to set yourself up. What small thing can I do to bring success? That's why often I teach writers, you know, you think you want to sit down, write that book, you torture yourself to write, you know, your 300 page book. Well, That's great, but the chances of that book getting published are iffy. So why not start with small things? Get an article published, get a poem published. And as I said to Tom, then you have a writer's resume. Then you have something that when you go out to those publishers and agents, you have something to talk Mm -hmm. about. Very cool. For one of my journalism classes right now, um, we have to make a blog that we're going to add on throughout the quarter. And my blog is about modern day femininity. So I thought that was really interesting that... um, Tom was talking to you today. My first kind of story is just about um, social media trends and how they've been portraying femininity. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of, but there's a lot of trends right now going on the platform TikTok where they say like, we're girls, we do this, and they portray femininity in a very specific light. So I'm just writing about that and how I think it can kind of toggle both ways because in a way, women are like claiming certain stereotypes and being like, you know, we do do this, it's kind of funny, whatever. But then in another way, it's kind of putting that claim on all women that might not want it. So that's what I'm discussing right now. Yeah, I think we're in a very interesting time, you know, for us to look at Beyonce and Taylor Swift with their 100% perfect bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is great for them, but also can be very unsettling for women that are struggling with those issues. I think that was the other thing for me coming to Berkeley and I say it in the book, I grew up with a mother that was judgmental. So when I got to Berkeley and I met women that were supportive, nurturing, encouraging, I had never gotten that. So what would you say to a parent to raise like a very strong woman? What about if we talk about empowerment? Yeah, I think the currently the term feminism in itself is just getting a very, like you were saying, a lot of people view it as the extremist side that you were talking about a little bit when it's entirely not that. So I know like my dad would never want me to be like a feminist, you know, because he kind of... No, that's really good to hear. That's really good to talk about. We need to talk about that, that people have negative connotations. And how do we change that a little bit? Yeah, and I think a lot of people in my generation should learn more about Berkeley, like read your book, read pieces like that, just to get more an understanding of how it came to be in movements that were early. Yeah, these issues that we're facing right now are so complex. Mm -hmm. We need to be really well informed. We need to know all sides of the issues. And that's the same thing with this. Yeah, let's just educate ourselves.
I'm Addie Yule. I'm a journalism student at Cal Poly, and you've been listening to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, interviewing Joan Gelfand. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you guys have a great week. Thank you so much for having me, Tom and Addie. It's been a pleasure. been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.